Hello listeners and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Sunday, April 27, 2019. Today I am joined by Nicholas Allmark via Skype to talk about his new documentary on North Korean ghost ships in Japan. But before we get into that, an announcement. Once again, NK News is offering a free year subscription to one lucky reviewer who reviews our podcast at iTunes or any other platform that you can find it. And you can save $50 off your annual nknews.org subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, please do share it with others so that our listenership will continue to grow. Okay, so my Skype guest today, Nicholas Allmark, is a UK-based filmmaker specializing in long-form documentaries set in the Asia-Pacific region, but he also works in Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and the Americas. His films broadcast globally on TV networks such as Al Jazeera English, CNBC, Vice, and Channel News Asia, which is where I saw this one, uh, featuring subjects ranging from plastic surgery in South Korea to eating roadkill in England. You can find out more about him at his website, www.allmark, that's A-H-L-M-A-R-K dot TV. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Nick. Thanks for having me. And uh, congratulations on this latest documentary, uh, which is the uh, Season 6, Episode 5 of Undercover Asia, produced for Channel News Asia. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I understand that you co-produced and directed this film together with a Japanese documentary maker, Yusuke Hayamizu. Yes, I, I, did, I did work uh, with uh, Yusuke, and he's um, a Japanese producer and filmmaker that I collaborated with since about 2011. So um, he's a kind of trusted um, person that I work with a lot. Also, um, just culturally working in Japan, it's really important to, to sort of work closely with, obviously, a Japanese mm. um, speaker filmmaker who's also bilingual um, and uh, and as a lot of this film was set in Japan although not all of it um, and there's quite a lot of uh, Japanese spoken language in it as well from start to finish how long did it take you to put this sh uh, this one together ghost ships of North Korea well I actually received the commission from Channel News Asia in April um, 2018 mm -hmm. but because the kind of peak time for the ghost ships is actually towards the end of the year because um, that's when the squid fishing season um, is more towards like September, October, November. Right. And that was when in 2017 most of the boats had been washed up. So we didn't actually start production until mid-November 2018. But obviously mm -hmm. before that, you know, me and Yusuke were obviously working on different projects, but we were kind of dipping our toes now and then into some research um, and so there was there was kind of um, fits and starts of kind of research and um, development up until November 2018. But from the time we started in mid-November 2018, the delivery of the film was mid-February 2019. So that was approximately um, a kind of three-month stretch. I believe that's three months. Right, yeah, that's that's a very quick uh, yeah. turnaround, I think, isn't it? Um... Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. Um, and we, yeah, we just really kind of went at it. And But obviously because Yusuke was also editing the film, mm -hmm. um, we would go and, go and shoot. So we would go up the coast to Western prefectures like a um, Akito Yamagata and then we would come back and then we would cut some footage and then we you know we had that kind of luxury to be able to kind of um, you know keep hopping back between Tokyo yep. and um, the coast of the west coast of Japan. Now how did you become interested in this story in the beginning? 
I mean, like everyone who's interested in North Korea, I guess I'd seen, you know, a lot of snippets and articles about these ghost ships, you know, dating back to the last four or five years. Mm. But what I've noticed is that they were usually pretty slim. They were pretty shallow kind of articles and they weren't really particularly in depth. And they, they just brought out, you know, theories that weren't necessarily backed up or that, you know, it was like, oh, uh, something, you know, something is happening with Kim, Kim Jong-un is forcing the fishermen to go out and do this and mm. do that. But nothing was ever very definitive. And it was all kind of like hearsay, quite clickbaity, which I guess a lot of North Korean, you know, Western media reports tend to be. I wanted to do something that could go deeper into the story because I felt that there was, you know, something to, to be sort of found out and something to be told about well, why the why this ghost ship phenomenon was happening. So the ghost ships, um, as I understand it, they're all uh, squid fishing boats that have turned up on the western coast of Japan, sometimes without motor, sometimes with motor, sometimes with a dead crew on board, sometimes with no trace of human you know, humanity on board, and sometimes with living survivors on board. Is that basically uh, the nuts and bolts of it? Correct. And this has really been happening in significant numbers since 2013. Okay, good. So, that was my next question. So, yeah, so this phenomenon began around 2013. So we're talking about the last five years that, uh, and it's always towards the latter in the period of the year, right? So we're talking uh, uh, November, December, January, that when the squid boats are out there, uh, that these uh, boats are turning up in Japan. That's right. So most of the boats are coming um, towards the kind of autumn period, which coincides with the, the kind of peak or the end of the squid fishing season in the Sea of Japan. So, so yeah, since 2013, there's been, I mean, according to our sort of research, um, between 2013 and 2018, there's been a total of 585 boats washed up in Japan, 91 dead bodies, and 51 uh, rescued fishermen. And the, the kind of peak year for um, dead dead bodies and um, rescued fishermen was 2017 mm. um, when there was 35 uh, deceased and 42 rescued in Japan. Uh, but the actual highest amount of boats came in last year and there was over 200 boats, approximately 225 according to the, the figures that we have, but less less uh, deceased fishermen, only 14 deceased fishermen and no, no rescues. Um, but at the start of this year, 2019, up to January, there was yeah. already 36 boats and eight rescued fishermen. There's been a sort of general upturn in the amount of kind of boats coming, but uh, some of the n other numbers have fluctuated a little bit. Do we know anything about how the crews who are found dead, how they're dying? What are they dying of? Is it, is it starvation? Is it lack of water? Is it injury? Yeah, it's basically um, malnutrition, starvation, you know, all, you know, all of the above, really, because, you know, they're, they're out at sea for up to three months at a time when they're actually fishing. Mm. But then if they're drifting, they've got no control of the boat, you know, it could be weeks, it could be, you know, like six weeks at sea. I mean, some of the boats that come in have said they were, you know, they were at sea for kind of, you know, three weeks or something. Others were like 10 days or seven days. So yeah, that I mean, as far as um, as far as we can tell, most of the deceased have been it's been down to malnutrition, mm -hmm. um, food, lack of water and exposure to the elements. OK, so there's no sign of any suicides or murders or anything like that, is there? Well, there was one case, um, I think it was early on, like maybe 2013, 2014. Mm. 
we didn't look into this case, but there was there was one case where there was I think um, three or four bodies on board that have been decapitated. Oh boy! But um, I think apart from that, it's been it's been purely um, about starvation at sea, and it's a pretty you know dark sort of grim way to go because oh, yeah. you know one person dies and then you know the other person has to watch the other person and then you know if there's like ten people on board and you're the last one, that's kind of um, it's pretty pretty dark. Yeah, yeah, and, and it can drag on for quite a long time. One thing that I was uh, was really struck by in the documentary is just how far it is from the northeast of Korea to the west coast of Japan. I mean, if you look on a uh, on a map there, it, it may not look that the as if the distance is that great, but it's we're talking more than a thousand kilometers here from uh, from Korea to Japan, uh, and that's if you're out there in the middle between the two countries uh, and for some reason you know you lose uh, control of the boat or the motor the engine stops working or you run out of fuel that's 500 kilometers of drifting to do before you get to the coast of Japan yeah exactly it's a long it's a long distance and it must be absolutely terrifying out there um, when that happens and uh, you know obviously it seems to be happening quite a lot I mean obviously we can come on to this later but I think that is also one kind of nail in the coffin for the theory that these people are in some way trying to defect because why would you go all that way from um, you know uh, North Korea to Japan when you could just slip through over to South Korea but um, yeah so it's a it's a big distance and um, you know obviously there's typhoons and, and things that happen at sea the things you can't really account we don't really think about or account for like you know the refugee um, North Korean refugee that we talked to in South Korea mm -hmm. um, who was a fisherman up to 2015 you know he would talk about like you know people are at sea and you know you know people like bang their heads and die of concussion people jump out of the boat and commit suicide because they're so terrified if you see like a a whale kind of pop out of the water and you're you know fisherman from you know the north northeast coast of uh, north korea mm, from chongjin yeah people have heart attacks you know it's like it's it's pretty it's pretty raw out there you know people have heart attacks if they see a whale jump out of the water so yeah it's um, yeah they painted a pretty sort of grim picture and they're out there for like i said up to three months at a time and they're pretty small boats with up to 10 15 people in them so it's got to be a pretty kind of tough existence yeah we should probably look into that a little bit you you um you've titled the documentary ghost ships but they come in different sizes don't they some are really barely more than uh, than a small boat and some are you know 15 meters long so they're, they're not all the same shape or size or type are they no exactly um i mean they're, they're generally fairly rudimentary in terms of their their, their wooden boats right these um, are wooden but... boats these are not uh, giant iron hulled you know uh, uh modern fishing vessels vessels are they no, exactly. So we went on some Japanese squid fishing boats, um, and they are like big beasts. You know, they're real high-tech, big uh, metal ships. But these are really, really small, kind of rudimentary boats. And you know, even the biggest ones, which you said are about 15, 15 meters, are um, are pretty small. And I think uh, as you'll have seen in the documentary um part of the reason for that is uh, as andre lenkov was telling us in, in the film post the kind of collapse of the soviet union um in the uh, in the early 90s mm -hmm. the, the the big fishing fleets which relied on a lot of uh, oil uh, which was coming from for cheap prices from uh, the Soviet Union could no longer well, they were no longer sustainable for um because the the price of gas and oil went up 
So that's another reason why they retired a lot of these fishing fleets, these big um, industrial, you know, um, fishing boats, and started to create these smaller boats, which smaller crews went out and into the sea and um, went fishing for. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the survivors here. Give us again the number of uh, of living survivors who have been found on these boats. So between 2013 and up until the end of January 2019, we've got 59 rescued um, North Korean fishermen. And have any of them, uh, as far as we know, uh, sought to defect to Japan or other countries? We haven't had any evidence or any um, anything from Japanese media or anything that we can find from the Japanese police. Mm. Uh, also, um, Jiro Ishimura from uh, Asia Press, um, he also didn't have any information about anyone in that time period asking to, to defect. I mean, one of the things that uh, Jiro-san said was if one, one fisherman decides he wants to defect he'll be under pressure from say there's 10 fishermen and one wants to defect the other nine put him under pressure and say well if you defect you're gonna basically you know that's gonna cause big problems for us when we go back home right so kind of a group mentality where they you know if they even if one did want to defect there would be peer pressure from the others not to defect because of the, the kind of uh, um, effect it's going to have on on the other fishermen so as far as we know none none of the fishermen have defected but I mean, you know, we don't have like 100% definitive proof of that. It could be that some did defect when they, you know, and they, it's just that the Japanese media or the Japanese police didn't want to report it for whatever reason, you know, um, maybe with to do with like relations between Japan and North Korea. They didn't want to rile up any bad feelings with North Korea. So uh, let's assume then that all the uh, the survivors have been repatriated to North Korea. What do we know about, you know, what kind of a homecoming can they expect? Uh, they've been away possibly, as you said, maybe as up to three months fishing. Uh, something's gone wrong. They've ended up in Japan. Uh, presumably they've been held in Japan for a bit of, a bit of questioning before going back to North Korea. You know, is it a danger for them going back back home? Well, one of the uh, defectors that we talked to, um, he he said that when they get sent back to North Korea, you know, from Japan, it's it's kind of complicated, and and they will definitely be, you know, they will undergo a lot of interrogations, and they will undergo a lot of questioning. Uh, they're probably, you know. They're probably not going to be thrown in into some kind of prison camp or anything. Mm-hmm. However, there are some cases where North Korean fishermen. Um, there was one case in Hokkaido in 2017, I believe, where the the fishermen went onto an uninhabited island and they um, actually sort of raided this this building and took um, solar panels out of it and um, mm. around roughly seventy thousand dollars worth of stuff that they they kind of took um, and or, or damaged. Mm-hmm. And and they were eventually caught by the Coast Guards. They were, um, I think they were, most of them were sent back, but the captain and a few others were kept behind and had to actually go through some kind of, um, you know, uh, assist, uh, some kind of uh, court uh, case. Oh. And then actually they did return back to North Korea. So I imagine in that case that there would be harsher repercussions for those people that kind of got into, that, that weren't just rescued as drifters that actually kind of, did some other stuff when they were in Japan. Okay, so let's uh, look at some of the different uh, theories that are given for this phenomenon of these boats being stranded on uh, on the, the western shores of Japan. Uh, I want to start off with the theory that's put forward by the family members of Japanese abductees to North Korea. What do they think is going on? 
Uh, yeah, so there's um, an, an advocate for um, you know the, the return of uh, Japanese abductees uh, by North Korea, mm. um, a guy called uh, Kezihura uh, Araki, who is in charge of the abduction research organization and another org- organization called the Blue Ribbon Organization, which is kind of, um, I guess, like a political pressure group to bring back whatever abductees are still out there yeah. um, in North Korea. And he's actually written a book on the ghost ships, and uh, he he has a theory, which is in the film, that you know, okay, most of them are fishing boats, but uh, some of them, you know, could be, you know, some boats have washed ashore and they're not even that badly damaged, mm-hmm. and um, you know, some some people could have made lands, and also because a lot of these boats, the fishermen wear military fatigues, or they have like, um, they're associated with some, some kind of military unit back in uh, North Korea. Mm-hmm. So they might find like a, a hat worn by a, some kind of um, soldier or something. Because of that as well, there's this sort of fear that, you know, perhaps these are, um, you know, that these might be some kind of infiltrators into the country. We we kind of went along with that in the, in the documentary for a while. And you can kind of see why people would be paranoid because of what's happened in the past yeah. you know and why people might draw those kinds of conclusions on the other hand it seems quite you know far-fetched that they would come on these rudimentary boats mm. and just you know and to do what get out of the boat and, and do what i mean there's other ways of smuggling smart spies into into japan right but uh, having said that as well um you know i think generally speaking the government japanese government is viewing this as a humanitarian issue and, and the fishermen are treated as, as drifters and mm. not treated as intruders. You know, I think that um, basically, you know, some, some politicians have sort of stoked up the possibility of a security threat, um, but I think it should be viewed within the context of the historical context of the paranoia mm-hmm. uh, and the fear of, of everything North Korean because of, well, you know, North Korea has threatened to wipe Japan off the face of the planet a couple of times mm-hmm. and because of, um, you know, the abductions. Plus, I think... You know, it's just another maybe way for some some of the right-leaning politicians to advocate changes in the constitution as well. So, so those kinds of those kinds of people. So there's one, uh, the chief cabinet secretary, uh, Yoshida Suga. He said, I'm just quoting, uh, there's a possibility among others that some of the people on these ships might be North Korean agents, police, self-defense forces, and Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, self-defense forces and Coast Guard are working in tandem to deal with the situation to its fullest extent. And then there was another incident in uh, Yuri Honjo Marina in November 2018, where eight to 10 North Korean fishermen uh, washed up in um, the marina and uh, the, the governor of Akita Prefecture, which is where the marina is, um, a guy called uh, Norishi Sataki, um, he said, are these really fishing boats or are they spy ships? Were, were there really only eight people on board? Uh, we have to be able to make a thorough investigation of these vessels. And then there was another guy in the Japanese uh, diet, lower house member, uh, a lower house member in the Japanese diet said, um, it is common knowledge among UN experts that North Korea is in possession of weaponized smallpox virus. If even one person who comes ashore is infected, then the virus will spread in Japan without limit unless vaccinations have been administered. Hmm. So there are, I wouldn't say it's a mainstream view, to be honest with you. It's not like, uh, you know, I don't think... Um, you know, politicians are really thinking that this is the case, but there are, right. you know, some people on the more right side of Japanese politics who yeah. are, are talking about that. And then the the, the incident 
in Yuri Honjo Marina is really interesting because the boat came into the marina and the which is Yuri Honjo is kind of a small fishing sort of town village and uh the north korean fishermen came into the village and were like knocking on old ladies doors mm. and <laughs> sort of asking for help so you can imagine what's interesting is these areas where the boats wash up are exactly the same areas where the abductions took place almost like you know within half a mile of where a boat washes up where we were filming one boat we we were looking at a kind of map and there was a, an abduction here an abduction there so you can you can imagine for an old lady old japanese lady living in the in one of these villages and um you know who was around when the abductions took place mm -hmm. and then north Korea knocks on her door in the middle of night it could be a little bit scary mm -hmm. uh this uh this this yuri honjo um incident um is interesting because there was apparently eight north korean fishermen mm -hmm. but then the the governor the akita governor um was you know in that quote i gave you he was saying oh was there was there really only eight people because there's some witnesses who said there was 10 people huh. and so now there's this rumor sort of swirling around a little bit in um akita city and akita prefecture that actually two of the fishermen went eloped oh. and uh, even even amongst um some of the uh korean community in akita that we talked to there was even rumors amongst them that there was maybe two of the fishermen that had eloped but we didn't really follow that line of investigation because i mean it could well be like trying to find the loch ness monster well, and it right. could just yeah, you mentioned the uh, the North Korean community in Japan. I guess it's probably more accurate to say the uh, community of Japanese Koreans who have sympathies for or a pro North Korean regime. Do we know how how's that level of support going these days? Because I think uh, in the last two decades we've seen a bit of a drop off in support. There haven't we amongst the uh, what they call the Zainichi uh, Korean Japanese? Uh, I, I don't know, you know, a great deal about about um, the organisation, but from what I can sort of garner, that um, a lot of the funding has from coming from North Korea has been reduced mm. over the years. So, and I think the membership is down to. Uh, I mean, I'd have to double check this, but I think it's around seventy thousand or something. Um, Do they still have the network of uh, of schools there, pro North Korean schools, uh, run yeah. separately of the Japanese education system? Yeah, they did. Actually, a friend of mine made a really good documentary for Al Jazeera mm -hmm. uh, for a show called One on One East about the uh, North Korean schools where they got really good access to the schools and, and interviewed the students and the headmasters. It's worth a watch. That's a really fascinating kind of subculture yeah. that's that still exists but you know um, i think it's eight hundred thousand or six hundred thousand north korean uh, people of north korean or associate themselves as north korean in japan um i think the membership from what i can tell has gone down quite a lot now uh, let's uh, move on to uh, japanese journalist jiro ishimaru who's been covering north korea for decades he has sources inside the country what does he think of uh, of the, the ghost ships what's uh, what's behind the phenomenon in uh, in his opinion yeah, one of the things he says in the documentary is that Chongjin, which is the main sort of fishing port on the East Coast, is referred to as uh, Widow's City. Mm. Uh, widow's town, sorry, because so many, so many widows there, because so many, you know, fishermen have died uh, based from that town or leaving from that town. But his his main kind of um, his main theory is pretty much the theory that you know we we came to and that what andre would come to as well um that more and more of these fishermen over the years have gone further and further away from the coast and are taking more risks because of a variety of reasons which are covered in the film mm -hmm. and uh, uh the the main thing is that these these fishermen over the years have 
gone into Japanese um, Japanese waters, the Yamato Bank, which is a kind of shallow water region um, in the Sea of Japan, where, where there is an abundance of, of squid. They've gone from their own shores, which have become depleted over the years, mm. um, and they've gone into these Japanese waters. It's something we're seeing around the world that the ships are having to go further to get uh, to you know to get the squid or the fish that they're looking for, and in this case, something's happening, something's going wrong, and they're uh, uh, you know, um, experiencing misadventure. Yeah, exactly, and um, you know part of the reason that their their local waters have been so depleted is because over the years there's been more and more of these like uh, private fishing licenses that have been handed out to North Korean fishermen. Mm -hmm. So more and more of them are are fishing in their own waters, but overfishing. And there's been a kind of lack of regulation, I think, of, you know, of what you can and what you can't fish. So that automatically pushes them out further away from their own waters. And then obviously... I'm sure we'll come to them, but there's other factors as well to do with, you know, quotas, um, sanctions. And one thing we didn't put in the film is that there's uh, some evidence and some some kind of hearsay rumor as well that um, the coastal fishing waters around North Korea had the fishing rights have been sold to China Mm -hmm. or and points there's been you know um times where the chinese boats are allowed to kind of come in and you know take um fish from north korean waters but uh it's obviously that could be another factor as well as just overfishing by north korean fishermen what's the uh, the, the attitude of the three governments that are involved i say three governments i mean uh, north korea and japan are obviously the two major players but the, the south korean government might have an interest too so what are the three governments saying about this phenomenon um, well, uh, I think we talked about a little bit about the Japan government before. Um, right, and so, it's mainly humanitarian, right? Yeah, um, but but there's there's obviously some people within politics there who are saying that it's a threat. Uh, within North Korea, um, they they re- often refer to the fishing season as the winter fishing battle, and they refer to fishermen as you know warriors. So I know that there's always a lot within industry. There's a lot of you know a talk between describing sort of workers and in industry as as you know soldiers or, or we're in a war, or it's a battle. That's kind of um, Speed battles well, as well, battles against time. Yeah, exactly. There's not there's not much in the way of official commentary or acknowledgement of the ghost ships, um, but Andrei Lankov believes it is a, a source of sort of shame and embarrassment for the North Korean government. Uh, but one thing, in February 2019, the Korean Central News Agency actually thanked Tokyo uh, for, quote, having offered humanitarian assistance several times to the so that the uh, DPRK crewmen who had been distressed in recent years returned home in safety. So I think that implies, Mm. you know, that the North Korean government was actually thanking the Japanese government indirectly through the Red Cross because they couldn't, you know, they, they didn't want to come out publicly and the the red cross being able to come out and say that was obviously okayed by the north korean government so i think that suggests that the north korean government are actually very grateful for the way that the japanese have treated their citizens who have been washed up in japan hmm. any idea what the south korean government has uh, has said in, uh, if anything on this issue yeah we haven't really got uh, much inf- inf- we didn't really go into that too much but uh, i think it's also viewed as a kind of humanitarian issue uh, and not as a security threat and um if there was ever some kind of big war or conflict i guess that is one way that people might try and get into south korea would be via boat yeah um but generally speaking no um we don't we didn't really kind of 
get into that in the documentary. It's more focused on, on Japan. What's the role of sanctions in this whole issue? In 2016, North Korean seafood exports were worth uh, 196 million um, US dollars. Um, and then in 2000, August 2017, uh, of course, the UN imposed a ban uh, on iron, uh, lead and coal. But the same year, they also imposed um, a ban on uh, exports of seafood. Mm. So what's interesting is that August 2017 was kind of the start of the squid fishing season. And that's when those that ban on seafood kicked in. Uh-huh. And that same year, suddenly the numbers peaked. So, you know, the numbers of, of ghost ships coming in went to an all-time high of 104 boats. There's 30, 35 dead fishermen and 42 rescued. Uh, and majority of those incidents came after the sanctions were enforced. There's a clear correlation that the sanctions on seafoods have uh, created an uptick in the amount of um, boats that were coming into Japan. And but, but why would that be? Well, the reason that uh, Andre Andre Lankoff gives in the documentary is that because there's sanctions. Uh, the uh, North Korean fishermen are still selling their seafood, but they're selling their seafood to partners um, illegally. They're smuggling their seafood. Uh-huh. And because because they're smuggling their seafood illegally and they're selling their food um, illegally, that means that the price of squid, the, the buyers are asking for a much lower price because it's a risk for them uh-huh. to buy it. Yep. So yeah. you, might buy a, you, you might catch a ton of squid, but that ton of squid is only worth half a ton of yep. what it was worth the year before. Right. So that means that the North Korean fishermen are under more pressure to buy more and more. Like, so the, the North Korean fishermen are under pressure to you know, catch more and more squid. They're yep. under even more pressure than they were before the sanctions uh, because their, their catch isn't, simply isn't worth as much as it was. Do you think that this phenomenon will continue uh, of the ghost ships turning up in Japan? You know, I don't have the statistics past January 2019, but already 36 boats in January 2019 and eight rescued fishermen. As long as sanctions uh, are continuing, and even if they're not continuing, I think fishing is still going to be important for the economy and uh, as a way to sort of earn foreign currency for for the economy. And obviously, from what I can tell anyway, the economy is kind of opening up and this, uh, you know, handing out fishing licenses to lots of different people, lots of different um, private uh, companies is is kind of reflective of, of how the North Korean economy is, is kind of opening up. So I think the more it opens up and, and if there's not if it's not regulated properly in terms of safety and, and whatnot, then um, I think more and more of these incidents are going to kind of continue. So I, I would be surprised, you know, 2018 was the, n- the biggest number of boats that arrived, even though there was less deaths and no people rescued. But um, I, I would be surprised if 2019, if you check the statistics by the end of the year, if it doesn't, you know, uh, overtake the, the number in 2018, or is at least a sim- similar kind of number. Are North Korean ships, ghost ships, also turning up on the shores of other countries or is it just Japan? Yeah, so the, the main other, I mean, they do wash up in South Korea as well, obviously. 
But um, the main uh, other country where they they wash up is the um, Primorsky region in Russia. In August 2017, there was a big typhoon in the Sea of Japan. And uh, that month, the Russian Coast Guard rescued 70 North Korean fishermen in wow. just, just that month alone, which Gee. is quite a lot. Yeah. And if you go on YouTube, there's plenty of videos, anecdotal evidence, uh, you know, within YouTube videos mm-hmm. that shows North Korean fishermen washed up in Russia and just members of the public kind of going out and helping them out of the boats, giving them some water, assisting them. Uh, or something that looks like water. Something that looks like water, could exactly. Be a little bit, could be a little bit stronger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they might need that after being, you know, washed up, washed um, at sea for such a long time. But, you know, that, that was really interesting in Russia because the authorities are, are much less mm. kind of tight compared to Japan. So in Japan, it's like once someone is arrested or someone, uh, once a North Korean fisherman is picked up, mm-hmm. you know, that's it. You're not going to see them again. You're not going to hear anything about them. But in Russia, you know, they allow film crews to just go in, um, interview the fishermen, talk to them. It's a much it's a much kind of looser approach right. uh, from the authorities there. So I would say actually uh, it's much easier to access the boats and, and the, the bodies and the stranded North Korean fishermen um, in, in Russia versus to what happens in Japan, where, where the police will just don't talk to the media like much at all. It would have been actually a lot easier for me to, to make the film in Russia, hmm. and I would have got probably direct access to, to fishermen who have been washed up. Yeah. But um, and I'd still like to maybe look into that and uh, investigate that as well. I think the reason I chose Japan is because of the relationship between Japan and and North Korea and North Korea or the Korean Peninsula being a a former colonial subject of Japan and all the kind of historical tensions and relationships between the two countries was what made it interesting for me and why I chose Japan, even though it was the more difficult kind of bet. Okay, last question, most important one. Where can our listeners go and see your documentary? Yeah, so the documentary at the moment is, it was broadcast on Channel News Asia, which is a Singapore-based English-language news channel, which broadcasts all over the Asia-Pacific region. But it's also on their website. So you just need to type in uh, North Korean ghost ships undercover Asia into Google and it will pop up. Mm. Uh, at some point, they're going to put it onto YouTube where it'll be more easily accessible to watch to everyone as well, hopefully. Great. Uh, but um, that is where you can watch it online at the moment. Uh, so you can just like stream it and watch it for free anywhere in the world. So, uh, yeah, I'd be really interested for your listenership to um, – to have a watch of the film because uh, obviously I know you guys, um, people that listen to this are either, you know, really knowledgeable and experienced about North Korea or are just like interested in it. So yeah, please, uh, if anyone out there wants to have a look, please have a look and uh, feel free to contact me on my website if you have any kind of queries or questions about um, the film or anything else. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Nick Allmark, for coming on the NK News podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Come summer. Uh, excellent. All right. And listeners, yes, as he said, you can go to uh, channelnewsasia.com or just do a Google search for North Korean ghost ships undercover Asia and uh, check it out. And don't forget also, please subscribe to NK News podcast and send comments, feedback, guest suggestions or questions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chatter Carroll and Christina Lee. And one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership. So please review us after listening and you might win. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Thanks and listen again next time. 